as I was getting ready for this, it reminded me uh, about, uh, I think it was about two or three years ago, I, I was either watching a documentary or I was listening to an interview on NPR about professional chess players, like chess masters, people who they devoted their lives I and mean, they played competitively around the world. That is how they got their income. I don't know how that works, but um, they got their income through playing chess. And they were the best of the best. It was a fascinating interview, and uh, they talked about, this guy who's being interviewed and several others talked about, and I didn't know this, but apparently if you're really good at chess, then you have certain strategies like games that are already kind of laid out in your mind of this is how I'm going to play this game. And so the guy would talk about, he's like, yeah, and such and such in this world championship, I played the hippopotamus. It's like, what is that? But he talked about how the hippopotamus meant that, like, Every move that he did during the course of that game was laid out, and it was scheduled, and it was all this stuff. Or he, you know, he did the Blitzkrieg game, and he, that means that everything was worked out according to this master great-grand plan that he had. And um, the reason I thought about that is that in this passage, as I looked at it, you begin to kind of look at it and see this seems to not make sense. Um, there's all these different moving pieces, but what I want us to see and what God is trying to get us to see in this passage tonight and really throughout the whole course of Scripture and the whole trajectory of, trajectory of Scripture is trying to get us to see that God is always at work and that He has a plan that He is executing to perfection. And His plan is bringing about the desired end that His elect chosen people would come to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and that they would see their own need for Jesus and that they would be brought to God through what Jesus has done in His life and death and resurrection. And what I want us to see and begin to see even just for a glimpse tonight is that God does this and He makes no mistakes as He executes this plan and that's going to be, quite frankly, that's going to kind of have a rub for us. Because there are things that happen in this world and that happen in our lives that are hard to make sense of. But what I hope that we see as we look is that um, God does have a plan and that God is with us in the midst of that. So let me pray for us. We're going to read this passage together and then we'll talk about it for a second. Uh, Father, uh, we come to you on uh, this, actually this historic day. Um, Forty years ago, uh, the Roe versus Wade legislation was handed down, and um, since that time there have been so many uh, innocent children who have uh, not had a chance at life through abortion. And uh, we want to pray for uh, the people, the legislators, the ministries uh, around this country that are working hard to uh, to bring change and to bring life and to save life and to restore dignity and to come alongside um, women in all sorts of circumstances, some of which are, quite frankly, are just they're very difficult. And they have um, had things done to them that are unspeakable. And we do, we pray for all of those who have been involved, who have been affected. We pray that you would restore dignity where it has been lost. We pray that you would bring justice where it has been lost. And we pray that you would save and restore life and you would encourage those who are involved toward this end. God, it is not easy. It is not a simple fix. 
So we pray for the legislation. We pray for righteous and just laws that would be in accord um, with your word. Uh, so we ask for that. And for tonight, we ask that you would attend to us, that you would open our ears uh, and our hearts, that we might hear your word and that it might uh, move us and it might change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I didn't mean to blindside you with that. I just forgot to kind of talk about that first. So let's look at um, this passage together. I'm going to stand off to the side, actually, uh, as I read this, because that's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my Bible, but I'm reading off the paper. I hope that's cool with y'all. It's cool with me. It's cool with you. Um, Let's read Exodus chapter 2, verses... I'm actually going to do neither. I'm just going to read it off the screen. Um, Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 through 25. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi, which was one of the families that we talked about last week, just a family clan that was in in slavery in Egypt, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. She did this because the king of Egypt had ordered that all of the uh, Hebrew Israel children uh, would be cast into the river and drown. So she hid it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. This child. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, the king, came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her, her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go! So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian has delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. 
She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew that is the, uh, God's Word. Look, as I mentioned, uh, and what we're going to look at tonight is this idea that God is always at work. And the two things I want us to see about that are that God has a plan and that God knows. Very simple. That God has a plan and that God knows. So first, God has a plan. What do I mean by that? If you look in this passage, and if I had it back up there, I should have pulled it back up. Um, Through the first 22 verses of this passage, God is not mentioned. The name God is not mentioned. He seems to be absolutely absent. And actually the events that kind of unfold would would seem to kind of parallel with that. Because if you look at them, if you remember them, they're just kind of crazy. It's this story of, and Moses is writing this, so he's accounting the story of his, of his birth, and that was really bizarre, right? I mean, he was, he was birthed into an infanticide. But yet his mom saved him and, and put him among the reeds, and yet the king's daughter found him and saved him. And then, ironically, Moses' mom ends up getting paid to nurse him, and that's weird. And, like, and then he gets to grow up in the Egyptian court, so he grows up like royalty, and then, in the midst of that, he goes out one day and he sees an Egyptian like beating on one of his brothers, a fellow Hebrew. And so what does he do? Well, he kills him. Good grief, Moses. So he kills him and buries him in a sand dune. And um, then after that, Pharaoh finds out about that. And he kicks Moses out. And so he goes out and he's by this well, gets married, has kids. Oh, my gosh. It's just craziness. It's like an eighth grade diary. <laughs> just all these things coming together. What, what does it mean? Um, And it seems so random and sporadic, if if not bizarre, in this sequence of events. And there's no mention of God. Then think about it from the point of view of the Israelites, right? That here they are, they're in slavery, uh, this hard oppression. They were like God's special people. He had made these great promises to their father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and said that they would be a great nation and that they would be a, a blessing to all the peoples in the world. And here they are in slavery, imagine, imaginably thinking, God, where are you? I mean, haven't you seen they're killing our, our boys? Like, what's going on here? But then there is this, this glimmer of hope because one of their brothers, one of their relatives named Moses, he got in. Like he was growing up in the royal court. And so imagine them like, it's Moses. He's coming. Like, look at him. He's going to do it. Oh, my gosh, he just killed that guy. He loves us. And they're getting this, like, glimmer of hope that maybe, just maybe, that Moses would be this one to save them and deliver them. But then what? Pharaoh finds out and Moses flees from their midst. And so their flicker of hope is now gone. God, where are you? Don't you remember us? Don't you care? We're still here. But God's answer at the end of this passage, and actually throughout the rest of the pages of the whole Bible, is that He hasn't gone anywhere. That He is here and that He has a plan. 
I was talking with a friend a couple years ago, and this friend was telling me this story about a relationship that he had absolutely killed by smothering this girl. Now, let's be fair to him. I, uh, I'm very sympathetic to that. You can ask Sarah why. Uh, just the incessant phone calls, the texts. It's really just the texts, let's be honest. Texts all over the place, like just kept going, kept going, kept going. And he was just, uh, he knew it. He killed the relationship by smothering this girl. She said as much. And so um, he lay in his bed, lay or lie, in his bed one night. I'll let you figure it out. And uh, there he was knowing that this thing was dead, but he was a romantic. And I, I love that in him. But he was a romantic, and so he thought there to himself, I can save this. It was unsavable, but he thought, I can save this. And so what he did, this gets crazy, is he gets on his computer and he starts to compose this email. And the subject of the email says, you passed. And he would go on to explain to me that he wrote in this email to this girl that all of this weirdness that he had just put her through, like this incessant texting and everything, was this big test. And he was bringing her through it to show her that, um, you know, to see if she would pass the test. And so he announced through the subject on this email that she passed and he would actually have her now, right? And so he sent it off and then lay back down in bed, lay or lie, um, down in bed. And he said that, you know, there's probably that, that moment of hope, but actually he said it quickly turned to just like guilt and shame, realizing that he was just clearly manipulating her. So he got back out of bed, wrote a second email. I was like, look, I'm sorry. That whole last email that you may or may not have read is just total bull. Like, I was trying to manipulate you. I'm just, I'm just sorry. And he knew that she would go on to tell all of her friends and become infamous uh, in her story. What was really interesting and amazing about that is... As we were talking, I mean, I'm just like cringing. I'm crying for him. He said, you know what? That was, a, that was a disaster. But I've actually learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about relationships. I've learned a lot about things to do and not to do in the course, I guess, of the relationship, if you could call it that. And so he was able to look back and see how even through this painful, oh, terrible situation, that he actually could see God's hand at work in the middle of that. There's another friend that I talked to a couple years ago, and she was telling me, uh, she was a new Christian, and she was telling me about her study abroad experience. And um, she was recounting that there was one night, it was actually, the study abroad was situated to where she was going to spend the first half in a certain part of this country and the second half of another, in another part. And the last night of the first part, she had been out late with some friends um, and, you know, being a college student, drinking and, and having a good time. And she says that she had had too much to drink, and she made this decision to walk home uh, at the end of that night by herself. And so she's walking back to her flat or her apartment or whatever. And she says that she was um, assaulted and uh, touched and handled inappropriately by, uh, by a man and that the people around just looked, looked on and didn't do anything. And, right, and so as she's telling me this, I'm, just, I'm cringing, a different kind of cringe than the first one. Like I'm cringing in, in sadness because it's awful, like what's happened. And I'm just I'm saying, I'm so sorry that it's happened to you. And she looks, she's like, no, no, it's okay. Because see, what happened is through that, I realized that the way that my life was headed was on this path toward destruction. That that event was just like a microcosm of where I was going. 
And then she says that that next day she left to go to this other part of the country. And in this other country, she met this missionary couple who was there. And it was through that couple that she began to understand the love of God for her. And that she began to see what Jesus had done for her. And she wouldn't let me apologize because she said, no, that was all part of it. Like that was what God used to bring me to my need for Him. And it was amazing as she reflected on understanding that God had a plan, that He was working that plan even through very awful circumstance. And a lot of you are Christians in here. Not all, and that's fine. A lot of you are there, and you can attest to something like this. That you can look back on your life and you can look back at this, this story that's being told through your past and you begin to see the dots connect. And some of those dots, quite, again, quite frankly, are through things that were awful. Unspeakable things, actually, to some of you. And you begin to see how God is weaving together this story, how He's using all of these pieces to bring you to who you are today. Some of you right now have been broken up with. You had a relationship you thought was going a certain direction, and it ended. And in the immediate fallout of it, you're thinking, God, why would you let this happen? I thought this person was the one. I thought we were going to go all the way. I thought we were going to end up together. And it's hard, but then you begin to see that there's someone better out there. Or that God is going to wean you off of your dependence on that person so that He could show you that what you actually want and fully can depend on is Him. Or some of you, your, your best friend has got a new boyfriend or a girlfriend and your time with that person has gone down. You're just not able to spend much time with them because they're hanging out with the other person a lot. And it stinks and it's really hard and you're experiencing loneliness and frustration with that and sadness. And yet maybe... At some point you can look back and see that God was actually weaning you from that one friendship to introduce you to a whole other group of friends. Some of you are frustrated that you're here at TU because it wasn't your, your first choice. But you look around now and say, man, God, I've made these amazing friends. I've, I've already begun these friendships where I'm at the end of four years of friendships. They'll be my friends forever. It's people who love me and care for me. Some of you are absolutely broken over your sin and over the things that uh, you're caught in, over the things you keep doing that you thought you wouldn't be doing at all, and yet you can't stop doing them. Or you're anxious, or you're in the midst of depression, or you're in the midst of anger or jealousy, and you just are wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why am I here? Why this? Why now? And I hope that if, I hope that if you would trust in God, that if you would come to Him and realize that, look, all of His moves may not be apparent right now from where we sit, but that God absolutely has a perfect plan. And He is absolutely bringing about His desired purposes and end through this plan, through good and bad circumstances and things. And He's calling us to trust that and to believe in that. Look, but maybe you're not a Christian. And maybe you're looking at your life and you can't really make sense of the things that have happened. But you're beginning to think that 
Maybe God actually has a plan for you that as you look back at some of the bizarre things or the hard things or the good things, you get this overwhelming sense that this just couldn't be an accident. That all of these things couldn't just be working out this way just by sheer fate or coincidence. And maybe you've begun to even experience a little bit of that feeling of, you know, I think there's someone, I think there's someone behind this who actually gets me and who knows me and who loves me. And you begin to come, become comfortable with this idea that there is someone who loves you. Even when you can't make sense of all of the details of your life. Look, the reality of where this kind of talk about God having a plan leads us is, is really this. That God is either who He says He is, being sovereign over everything, all-knowing, completely wise, in control, powerful, able, good, loving, just, or He's not. That's what the Bible says He is, that He is all of those things. And that there is nothing happening in this world right now that is by accident. That God, the, the, the Puritan writers would say this, that only God can use sin... I'm not saying God sins or that He's the author of sin because He's not. But they said, and I think it's a great thought, that God uses sin sinlessly. That He can even work through tragedy to bring about His plan. And so what does this mean for us very practically? Well, it means that if you are someone who can believe in that kind of God, then at some point you will find yourself asking the question, why are you doing it that way? Why Newtown, Connecticut? Why the thing that happened to my friend last week? Why the thing that happened to me last week? Why this? Why now? And it'll become that question of, God, I don't get you. But I actually want to say that that is a fair question. Because within that question is an acknowledgement that God is there and that He is present and that He has a plan. Our problem is not with the idea of God having a plan. Our problem is that we are finite. That we are not all wise and all knowing. That we are not the sovereign ones. And God in His wisdom has not chosen to tell us the reason why He's doing everything that He's doing in this world right now. And that's hard. And that's the tension that Christianity invites you into is that tension of knowing that God is all loving and that He is just and that He is kind and that He is in the, He is at work in the midst of this plan that sometimes is hard to see. Think about Moses in the story. How could he ever have looked up at himself, especially after he murders this dude, and think that God would actually use him to bring deliverance to his chosen people. Moses would never understand, he would never believe that God would actually use his story in the story of Exodus to be the paradigm in the way that the whole Bible talked about what God would do eventually in Jesus to bring us into salvation, that he would free us from our bondage and slavery to sin. Moses wouldn't have gotten that. There's no way. 
but it invites us into this picture that God has a plan that you can trust Him. You don't have to live life panicked, wondering at every turn, God, exactly what you're doing, because He's not, he's not going to reveal that to us right now. But the overwhelming sense is that we can trust Him, that we can trust His plan. And secondly, you can trust Him and rest in what He's doing because as this passage says, He knows. He knows us and He loves us. From what we know elsewhere in Moses' life, this verse 23, it says um, <clears throat> that those many days passed. That many, that, that many days was like 40 years. And it says, and you look back down, that the king chased Moses out of Egypt and that guy died, but things aren't any better. The Israelites, this family that was growing, is now still in slavery. It says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Imagine that. Forty more years of the same thing. Nothing. Everything they would have been feeling and experiencing would have been telling them that God doesn't care about us. He's forgotten. But then we read the amazing verse, the, the amazing words that He heard their cries. He remembered His covenant with His people. He saw them and He knew. When He says that He knew, that is one of the most intimate words in the whole Old Testament. It actually is used in Genesis 4.1 when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. It is that sort of intimacy. Now, God is not in a sexual intimacy with us, but what it is saying is that it's, it's that close. That when God looks down in your circumstance, when He looks in your life in what we think is just a total blur, the Bible is saying that God knows that. He is very acquainted with His people's struggle. He is very acquainted. He hears and He remembers His promises to take care of us and to deliver us. And that's exactly what Moses is trying to get us to see, is that in the midst of life going dark, in the midst of all of the struggle, God sees us, He remembers, and He knows because He loves us. What we learn from this story and what this means for you and me is that when we fail, not if we fail, but when we fail, when I do things that are that are awful, that are very hurtful to my wife, and it happens a lot. And I fail her, and I fail God, and I fail those around me. And when you do things that fail your own expectation for yourself, or your parents' expectation for you, or God's expectation of you and hope for you, and you feel like an utter failure, and you feel like God wouldn't want to be around you, that He surely has forgotten about you by now, or given up on you, what we hear from this is that God... For those in relationship with Him, He is there, He knows, He cares, and He loves you. Look, and this means that for some of you who have those things you've told no one, this means for some of you who have experienced same-sex attraction, and that has you so paralyzed in fear or guilt, just at the thought of even saying that those thoughts have been in your mind, makes you think God would never and could never love me because I see how Christians treat those people like me. Surely God would want nothing to do with me. Look, there is no struggle that God has on the surface said, I am not going to enter into that. And I am because of that struggle not going to love someone. 
The thing about it is, is that when God comes in, He starts to mess with all of our stuff. Because He is seeking to free us from anything that has us down, that has us in slavery. And so for some of you, it's porn. For others of you, it's self-obsession. For others of you, it's grace. For others of you, it's relationship idolatry. When God comes in the midst of that, He knows it. He knows your struggle, and He is working to set you free from that. God keeps His promise to know and to love His people and to bring them freedom. And you need to know that sometimes that freedom looks like deliverance. And sometimes that freedom looks like God promising just to be with you in the midst of it. And He is promising that I'm going to be here with you. And you don't have to give in again. I am here. I am enough for you. I love you. My love is sufficient for you. You don't have to do that again. What God is promising is that He has a plan, that He is working it out, and that He is with you in the midst of that, and that He knows you, and that He loves you, and He's committed to you. This idea of freedom that the Bible holds out comes into full light thousands of years later when God would show the world, and He came right into the midst of the people who were descendants of the people in our story tonight. He came right into the midst of those people And he would show them how willing he was to become so intimately acquainted with their struggle and with their sin and with their struggle and and with their idolatry of all sorts. And what did he do? He said, I'm so willing to be acquainted with that that I'm going to send myself. So he sends Jesus, whose name was Emmanuel, God with us. And so Christianity, far from it saying that that God is somewhere out there and He makes us run to Him and to work up to Him, the story of Christianity is that God actually comes down to us, that He looks in the midst of our junk and He says, I know and I love you and I'm coming to get you. And I'm coming to bring you into freedom. I'm coming to rescue you. And that's exactly why Jesus came, is to bring you freedom, is to rescue you. In Romans 8.3, Paul says this. He says that by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. It's saying that Jesus came precisely for the thing that you think is keeping Him away and you think is keeping God away from loving you. Paul in the New Testament is saying that is exactly why Jesus came. It's to take all of those things that you fear are keeping you from God and to take them away from you. And Jesus says, I'll take him on me, and I will receive God's punishment. I will receive his wrath on the cross so that you never have to experience that separation, so that you never experience that wrath from God. And so what does God do? He rightly punishes Jesus on the cross. God is angry at our sin. But what does he do in response? He gives us the righteousness of His Son. And He looks at you if, you, if your faith is in Jesus, and says, I am rightly going to love you and be with you forever. And I am never leaving you. I will never forsake you. I am for you. I am with you. Look, I'm going to close with this thought. That when you begin to trust in God's love for you, pictured and purchased for you by Jesus, then you can begin to look back on your life and realize that God had you at checkmate from before the foundation of the world. 
and that He loved you so much that He works through the course of this life. And from our vantage point, we don't see it. We don't see how everything's going to work. But from His vantage point, He has got a beeline to your heart. And He is coming to you and saying, I'm with you. I love you. And I will be with you. And I will love you forever. And He gave us Jesus to show us that. And to bring us into that relationship. So that we might be free. Let's pray.